Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Mr. Gadgets, and I guess we'll call this one Open Shorts, Episode 4, Open Shorts, the podcast, the very infrequent podcast about open source and hackable hardware. It was my dream uh, once, and I really do have a passion, as if you can't tell, about making things and uh, building kits and things like that. And I was thinking that this would be my contribution. Of course, I never did get it together to do more than a couple of episodes. So one of my earlier Hacker Public Radios I called Open Shorts Episode 3, and we'll call this an Open Shorts Episode 4. This will be somewhat of a continuation of the discussion we've had over the last couple of weeks. I think we need more makers. We need more young people being makers, and we need more older people getting into makers. And when I say makers, I am referring, of course, to Make Magazine, the O'Reilly publication. So if you are interested in electronics at all, I would suggest that you might want to at least take a look at Maker Magazine because it has lots of interesting projects that you can go beyond just the magic black box of your computer and get into actually making electronic circuitry of your own. And uh, rather than do kind of a Black Friday, <laughs> uh, you know, report or anything like that, since that's strictly the U.S., uh, I will give a briefest of reports uh, that uh, a couple of oddities that I saw. Uh, it's always interesting to see the odd little accessories that people come out with. And quite often you see them actually in the stores in real life on the Christmas season. So... <laughs> See if you can spot anything weird like this and report it in. I saw two odd little things. One was a telephone handset that looked like an old analog phone telephone handset. For those of you who are too young to remember this, you know, before cell phones, there were phones that would connect to the wall, right, and they would have a coiled cord that uh, sometimes you got an extended cord, you know, so you could walk all the way across your kitchen or something like that. And uh, there's a you know a mouthpiece and a uh, a earpiece right a ear receiver and that's how you would make your call. Well, somebody decided they wanted to go retro with their mobile phones, and so I hear that Wozniak, Steve Wozniak, actually has a cell phone that's built into an old Western electric phone, and uh, <laughs> so he carries around this old red Western electric phone. I believe it's the red one. And I actually have one of those uh, upstairs in my pile of carp. It's an anagram. And uh, <coughs> anyway, it's got cell phone inside. And so he can make a cell phone call from his old-style analog phone. Well, they weren't willing to go that far, but there's a pretty much a standard connector for smartphones uh, other than Nokia. I think Nokia doesn't follow this, but there's a, a uh, instead of just tip-ring sleeves, for the 3.5 millimeter connector, uh, which we actually use proper metrics uh, for uh, telephone connectors. We don't call them 132 and 18 jacks, but I think that was the 18 of an inch jack, if I'm right. I don't know. Anyway, uh, it was the, uh, instead of just having the three connectors for stereo, there's a fourth ring, uh, or there's a fourth connector. There are two rings. So you have tip ring ring sleeve and of course the extra connector for the microphone and I believe you can use the same kinds of microphones for iPhones as you can for most of the Android devices 
So apparently this would be cross-platform across most of your popular smartphones. And so it was a handset that came in even in various colors because just because we want to go retro doesn't mean we want don't want to have our uh, pretty colors there. So it came in various colors, and it was about 20 bucks. Uh, whatever the exchange rate is internationally. I'm sure you could buy it even cheaper if you were in Bangkok or any of the places that have wonderful electronic stores that have more direct connections. And so in that case, we were uh, we were talking about a... Uh, <laughs> uh, you plug that into your cell phone and then you hold that up to your ear and uh, it would look like you were using an old-fashioned phone. That was a funny little thing, I thought. Who knows, they might sell some of those. Now, some of the other ones, though, that I did see were the uh, were uh, was a really strange little Canon device. Canon uh, used to make printers. Uh, I mean, oh, well, still makes printers, but Canon used to actually make a computer or two. In fact, I believe it was actually Canon that made some of the original parts for the original Macintoshes. We're all Canon manufactured. And uh, there's a guy named Jeff Raskin who was on the original Macintosh team who was really a user interface kind of a guy. And uh, you should look him up on Wikipedia. He came up with a alternate kind of a, it was kind of like a word processor that does everything, kind of a la Emacs, but not with the same list kind of programming language. Anyway, his idea was, you know, you should have everything all in the one user interface, your database, your word processing, uh, even some calculation kinds of capabilities. And, uh, he came out with the program before he passed, uh, once again, before his time. And uh, so maybe we'll talk about him at some other episode. Uh, but that was a Canon, I believe it was a Canon cat, which is not to be confused with the little uh, cats that were uh, barcode readers that were all the rage back in the 80s. And so Canon uh, had an accessory here besides just your printer. And it looked kind of like a mouse with a calculator put on the top and it was a blue it was a bluetooth mouse tin keypad and calculator all in one 40 bucks little high i think but and the the main reason why i think people like to have tin keypads is because they're essentially tin keypad experts they're like touch typists with numbers and the tin keypad they they know where all the numbers are and can input data very numeric data very quickly with the tanky pad and uh, this would not work for that because the number pad was too small it wasn't even the right arrangement all those kinds of things so who knows whether they will actually sell any of those or not but they had actually had those too on a nice little Canon display little cardboard you know fold-out display so those are some of the oddities that I found and I did actually manage to get one of the doorbuster kinds of things here uh, in the Thanksgiving holiday tradition of uh, Black Friday, they will have what they call doorbusters. And so one of the big doorbusters that I was actually interested in this particular year was a three terabyte USB drive. Uh, the free agents uh, from Seagate have this, uh, have three terabyte USBs. And uh, they had an amazing uh, price for the three terabyte drive, uh, and normally it would be closer to 200 uh, than not, uh, depending on sales and things like that, and they had it for 100. 
and I actually found one not by going at, you know, 10 o'clock at night or earlier, camping out in the line for the midnight opening of Best Buy to get to it. I actually found it in the Best Buy at like 1 o'clock in the afternoon, but it was on a shelf where extra disk drives were usually stored if they didn't have enough for their normal place where the drives would be on the lower shelves, up on a high shelf, and it had been pushed to the back, and no one could tell that it was there. And I found it at 1 o'clock in the afternoon and still got the doorbuster price. So there you go, doorbusters without even having to camp all night. But what I wanted to talk about, when this Open Shorts episode was open source hardware, we finally, ladies and gentlemen, Finally, children, we have open source hardware really coming into being true open source hardware. And this, of course, is in the form of various MakerBots and uh, RepRap machines. And this is the new revolution. I uh, attended a session uh, where the person who ran the session uh, at Ohio Linux Fest was way into this kind of thing, and he had... Uh, I believe, a, a uh, MakerBot. Uh, these are usually made of wood, and if you go to the MakeZine site uh, or go to the Maker store, you can see these. It's called a Thingomatic, and it's kind of a wooden box with uh, holes cut in it so you can see what's going on inside and get to the things that are being built inside. And uh, this is a way, with lots of stepper motors and electronics involved, that move a, a platter around, uh, not a platter in the... Uh, or, move a table around, essentially, a square. Move a, around the table, uh, back and forth, uh, underneath an extruder that extrudes plastic. So it heats up the plastic and then essentially prints little bits of plastic. It's a 3D printer. And the 3D printer revolution is upon us, and this is very analogous to the PC revolution, which I actually experienced back in the middle 70s. And there are many, many kinds of parallels here. In fact, I would put to you that you're better off now than you were in the PC revolution. Uh, number one, because there are more people with the skill sets to be able to do the programming, to program the 3D printers to do things. So there's a place called Thingoverse, uh, and Thingoverse has a bunch of plans, essentially 3D instructions for these 3D printers to be able to make these little plastic doodads. And right now, of course, it's all about plastic. Eventually, we're going to get to the universe that uh, not exactly what you think of as Star Trek, uh, when you know you order your hot cup of coffee and essentially something along the lines of the, uh, the transporter type of uh, transportation of matter, I think, was involved in that. and. Uh, you know, Captain Picard would say Earl Grey hot, and uh, you know uh, the chief would order his double sweet, double uh, you know, uh, double chocolate, double sweet, or you know, uh, various things like that. But that just kind of materialized magically, right, in the uh, microwave of the future, or at least that's kind of what it looked like. But that was kind of like transported technology. I mean, they have you know, developed uh, ostensibly in this future time, the way to uh, manage the whole energy matter and going back and forth between things, right? 
this is more like a printer, except instead of printing ink on a page, it is printing the different levels of plastic. Now, in the future, I imagine we will have available for relatively inexpensive prices things that you can have at home that will even be able to do metal of various types. But right now, it's plastic. And basically, the MITS computer, right? The Model Instrument Telemetry Systems computer that was the first computer kit that caused the big computer revolution and was the reason why, you know, Bill Gates stopped going to Harvard and he and Paul Allen moved to New Mexico, which is where the place Altair, who made the MITF, was actually located. And uh, they moved there and, you know, wrote the basic computer uh, interpreter for that to be able to process and the rest is history as far as Microsoft and to a certain extent the computer revolution in general, right? Everything was based off of that. There were a few little things here and there before that, but that was the first quote-unquote real computer, right, that came available with that 8008 processor, 8-bit processor, and uh, what in today's world would be a ludicrous amount of memory in terms of how small it was. But well, it was a huge amount of memory compared to mainframes, or at least equal to what mainframes had. So, at that particular point, in my mind, I could go back and I could look at the specifics of the prices. But I'm fairly certain that that MITS, because I left it after it, I wanted so much to be able to afford an MITS kit. But it was somewhere in the range of $800 to $1,000 for that kit. I may be a little bit high, but I don't think so. I think it was closer to the 800 to 1,000 range than it was the, you know, say 600 to 800 range. Given inflation, which does exist in spite of what central banks want to tell you, uh, between 19, mid-1970s and today, the price of a kit for a... 3D printer now is well below in terms of average income and in today's dollars compared with 19, you know, mid 70 dollars, the 75, 74 dollars we're talking about here, it is cheaper in terms of the equivalent dollars than those mid 70 dollars compared with the average income and uh, et cetera, et cetera, back then. And I think this is going to be as revolutionary in terms of 3D objects as the printer was for the printed page and information. Now, true, not everybody in the entire world probably has a usage for a 3D printer device in their home. But imagine not having to stock things in the store, but just going into the store the same way you go in with paint, and they don't have to stock every color of paint now. They just look at your paint chip you're interested in, and it figures out what the pigments are to mix together to have paint whatever color you want. Now, imagine that with parts. And instead of having to go to the auto parts store and then having all of the parts actually in stock, they can actually just print up a part for you. Imagine this in rural areas. Imagine this 
beyond just rural areas. Imagine this in sub-Saharan Africa, where that part might literally be unavailable for any price or at bare minimum is going to take maybe weeks to months to get there. That's plastic parts now, but do you not realize how much of your life is run by plastic parts? The insides of lots of things, including lots of things in your car, are plastic parts or nylon parts. And I'm not sure that we're very far away from 3D printing of nylon. And in fact, the ABS plastic that they're printing with is really strong material. We have a group here in town that had several of these at the uh, mini maker fair as well as the full-size maker fair that we had here in Kansas City. So I've seen them up close and personal. I have handled the parts they made as well as Ohio Linux Fest. And I always had it in my mind that these are some, these are some kind of soft, squishy, plastic kinds of things that, you know, yeah, maybe you could build up a plastic model, but it really would just be that. It'd just be a plastic model, but it really wouldn't be useful in terms of structurally. No. This is fairly hard plastic that is useful in many, many situations. And in fact, one of the most exciting things about this is a 3D printer is actually able to print out the plastic parts for a new 3D printer. So if you own a 3D printer for the more reasonable amount of money than compared with, say, buying that first computer kit or any of the computers in the uh, 70s there, up until the very late 70s, commercial printers that were, uh, commercial printers, commercial computers that were coming from someone all put together were towards the end of the 70s there, right? First one, Apple II, and then Candy came out with its computers, and there were several other ones that you could get that weren't in kit form. But they were more expensive than the $600 price, by and large, until some of the color computers from Candy came in and started lowballing and being more affordable for the average person. But in, in this case, those things weren't able to create another computer. Now, there was a person who came up with an idea, and these were actually commercially available for a while. Now, you got to picture this is before the Internet and before MP3 players, back when we all used to play our music on polycarbonate discs, okay? So CDs were the norm. There was a person who came up with this idea, and there was a whole company that had this, where you would go to the CD store, and the CD store could literally stock thousands of CDs that were real oddball kinds of CDs, right? Independence and things like that. And what was going to happen with this was you were going to figure out what CD you wanted, and it would burn the CD for you on the machine, and you'd carry it home with you. Now, this would be a CDR, right, instead of, so it wouldn't be quite as reliable as a stand CD or anything like that, but you'd have access at the CD store, which was your only way to buy music, right, of a wide variety of things. I don't think it was anything technological, and in fact, I think these guys had a better die system and a more reliable, less scratch-prone kind of a way of producing the CDs with the burner right there in the store, it wasn't a technological problem. It was a licensing problem. I know how hard it is for you to believe, but the music companies could not get their heads wrapped around where it would be an advantage to them to have their old catalog available in every CD store in the land. And they weren't going to have that. They were going to control 
isn't that hard to believe? They wanted to control the distribution of the music and not have music available in the store. I mean, you could have gone into a convenience store and ordered the CD, not just those pre-made CDs that you hate, right, that they might sell at the convenience store, but a wide variety of music, all available from a machine, a little kiosk machine that would essentially burn it for you right there. But the royalties stopped it from happening. With Thingiverse, it's a totally open system. Everything they publish out there is everybody can take it and do with it what they want. And there's all kinds of really interesting things. The cheap problem with the systems now are they're pretty expensive for people. There was a guy who didn't see it. He didn't get it at the Ohio Linux Fest. And he said, well, you know, I think this is a $800, the RepRap uh, was a $800 machine. And he said, well, uh, $800 is a lot of money. What's it good for? And he doesn't see the revolutionary aspects. Okay? Trust me, it's not going to be as big as computers in general, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is. Maybe it's going to be bigger. But we're on the cusp of another revolution, and it's another revolutionary wave, and you can ride it. So at the bare minimum, go out there online, find Make Magazine, and start looking at it there. You can find lots and lots of, of sites that talk about this, and I will, of course, have various kinds of links that I will send. And Ken Fallon, St. Kenneth of Hacker Public Radio, will put them in the show notes. And this is the revolution, folks. Trust me, this is the revolution. I've seen it before, and I know what I'm talking about. And there's nothing quite like it. Being there at the beginning of the revolution and participating in any way, shape, or form you can. You can produce the parts aside from a little bit of uh, um, metal rods that are involved. Okay, There's a few metal rods, some threaded, some not, that are involved. You buy those from a local hardware store. And there's, of course, stepper motors that are involved to control all this. But the plastic parts, the machine itself, can reproduce itself. It can produce the parts to build another machine. And people are getting real money for just those plastic parts. Okay? There's something here involved called the hobbled boat bolt. Okay? It's a bolt that has a nut on it. I don't even understand exactly what it is, but you have to have one, right, for these machines. If you've got any mechanical kind of aptitude, I've seen people sell them hobbled bolts on eBay for $35. And I'll guarantee you there's not $35 worth of bolt and nut and whatever else is involved there. So there's an opportunity here. There's an opportunity if you can acquire a machine to print out parts for other machines and sell those. Hobble bolt. Uh, I know because of my practical arts experience, back when I went to junior high, which was 7th and 8th grade here in the States, back uh, in the 60s, we had to have a certain amount of practical arts, and mine consisted of going to industrial arts class for my seventh and eighth grade years and then I didn't have to do any in high school to fulfill my couple of hours of, of uh, credit that I needed for that and I know for a fact my 
hand-eye coordination and my mechanical skills with my hands are not that good. The only thing I got a really good grade on in my entirety of those two years was the electronics class, of course, when we were soldering together uh, parts uh, to build circuits. And, of course, I built every circuit that was involved in the class inside of the first uh, month of the quarter, I think. And there were then uh, – <laughs> so there were several months that I just did extra credit for other circuits and things like that. That was the only decent grade I got. And I know from my model building, I'm not the best in terms of my mechanical skills and all that type of thing. So I'm not even sure I wouldn't buy pre-cut, you know, versions of the the rod, the the straight rod and the uh, the the rod that is threaded. There's all kinds of possibilities where you can jump in, you can start producing things and spreading it around. And I'm not sure you're going to make a living at it, but you'd probably be able to buy yourself a bigger machine. <laughs> uh, there's all kinds of interesting things here. In fact, what I'd like to see is every single, you know, every single machine out there and every single time you print the parts for a new machine that you sell, you print an equal number of parts for a machine that you can donate to a school. And I think every school, not just every school in the U.S., every school in Europe, every school on the planet eventually should have a 3D printer. And, yes, there's a computer involved that runs the small amount of electronics that's on the board that runs the stepper motors. And, yes, we have to figure out how to get the stepper motors. But, you know, once we start getting the plastic parts and the other that we can figure out a way where, you know, maybe every six machines parts will get you enough money to buy a stepper motor, and you can eventually you can have the entire kit, stepper motor, plans, everything, and you can donate it to a school. Every school should have one, and even for the schools that don't already have a computer that's capable of running the, the software, it's not going to, I mean, we're going to be able to get that software running on practically anything. That Raspberry Pi that they're working on over at Cambridge, it's going to be able to run this software. That one top per child can probably run this software. It's just a question of porting it. Okay? So the computing platform is going to be cheaper and cheaper, and we have the ability to have a system whereby we can put this into the hands of people who can learn how to do 3D printing and can then go with that. And who knows where we can go? Eventually, we could be having 3D printers that could be revolutionizing the way we make all kinds of things in our lives. And you're right at the beginning. You're right at the cusp. And it's going to change things. And pretty soon... That guy who said, well, that's a lot of money, what's it good for, is probably going to look back on that and realize what a silly statement that was. But, you know, it's hard to see it from here. And it's hard to see it anytime there's a singularity, okay? And I'm not talking about the big singularity that uh, Kurzweil talks about, you know, the transhuman singularity that that uh, Werner Vinge, or Vinge, however you pronounce it, uh, 
actually wrote about in Peace War, which is an excellent novel you should read from the 70s. I'm not talking about that. But what I am talking about is little singularities that on the other side of them, you literally rethink how you think about the world. Okay? Whatever your politics or whatever else you think about it, September 11th was a singularity. And there are certain differences in the way we think about things now that we really can't conceive. We could not conceive of that before that happened. Okay? The microcomputer revolution was a singularity. Before that, there were a few people who had an idea about how cool computers were, but that was all big iron, or at least mid-sized iron, you know? Bill Gates never t- touched a microcomputer when he was in school. He, in high school, he was lucky enough to have gone to a school that had access to a, a mid-sized computer, a, a, a timeshare computer, right? And that was the access he had to a computer system. And that was the access that everybody had the computer systems there. It was a specialized people, and it was a specialized kind of a machine. And the guy, the head of IBM at the time said he literally could not figure out why anybody would need a computer in the house. Okay? Everybody knew what a computer was for. Everybody knew why it is you would get into computers and what you would do with computers. And then microcomputers came along, and and pretty soon there's computers everywhere, and there's computers in everything, and it changed the world. And this is another one that's going to change the world. And you can get on it now. Truly open source hardware. And that is Open Shorts Episode 4. Links will be on the webpage. I'll get those out to Ken, and uh, if they're not, uh, well, I'm going to get those out to Ken, and we're going to have those ready. And, of course, you can always contact me. Tell me that I am full of carp, uh, or <laughs> or agree with me, or tell me what you think about this open-source 3D printing revolution here, or what other kind of oddball thing it is that you saw uh, in your Christmas shopping this year. What kind of tra- crazy tech Right? Have you seen out there just the strangest thing? Who is ever going to buy that? You know? Because uh, we need more shows, people. We need more shows. So, uh, what are you shopping for this Christmas? What kind of odd thing did you see when you were shopping this Christmas? What do you think about open source hardware? All those kinds of things you can, of course, send me an email to hbr at mrgadgets.com and get a hold of me that way via email. And until next time, this is Sister Gadgets, and I am out here trailblazing to find out the latest things that I can about open source hardware to report that back to you. And until next time, this is Sister Gadgets saying be careful out there. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. 
All BinRef projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.